CityCast from Explicity. Back at his home, Charlie looked at the two men and his deep blue eyes twinkled. I know this with a bribe, we can do this. The British have been doing this for almost 200 years. These Indians have a backbone that supports corruption. It is the way they do business here. Charlie looked at the two men. Well, what will it be? Cold rain in muggy England or hot sunshine and wealth in India? Tomo held out his arm and shook Charlie's hand. Willie did the same. Charlie smiled and they reached a gentleman's agreement. Now we drink, he said. Charlie walked to his bar and came back with a bottle of scotch. The men toasted each other. I'm going to tell you a story that is connected to Cross Island, Charlie said, as he settled in his rocking chair. What I am about to describe is documented fact. In 1553, Luis de Camos, a Portuguese poet with strong royal connections, was forced to leave Portugal. He left for Goa aboard the Sao Benito. Before he left, he raided the national treasury and loaded the ship with bar after bar of Portuguese gold. This was his poetic revenge on the royal court. He was arrested when he reached Goa, but by that time the gold on the ship had disappeared. They had to let him go. What the poet had done was transfer the gold in the middle of the sea to a vessel bound for Bombay. They were then going to rendezvous in Bombay and sell the gold in the black market. Of course, when they reached Bombay, the ship's captain was nowhere to be found. He buried the gold on Cross Island while he bartered with the Bombay underground. One evening, drunk in a bar, he was killed in a knife fight, and the gold, uh, that's where the gold is. They say that there is no fresh water on Cross Island, but my research says that he dumped the gold in a well that was later filled in. Willie pointed his index finger at Charlie. His tone was argumentative. Someone would have cried finally. I am sure you are not the only one who knows all this. Charlie waved his hands in frustration. Yes, people have tried, many of them, but they were digging for gold. We will be digging for water. The source of that natural spring is where the gold is. I am going to use the best water diviner that lives in India. This is the incredible but true story of an Englishman, a dock worker in Bombay in the 1940s, who became a smuggler around the time of independence. Now, not far offshore from the ferry wharf in Bombay is a small island. It's only about 100 meters out by boat, and you can see it from ferry wharf. It's called Cross Island. Now, you can see Cross Island on Google Maps as well. But even people who have lived in Bombay all their lives are not aware that this island even exists. Mystery has always shrouded Cross Island, and, like every abandoned or uninhabited place, it is beset by urban legend, the usual stuff. It's haunted, it has ghosts, it has ghosts of murdered people. It has been the location of all manners of criminal and supernatural events. But the most compelling mystery of Cross Island is the story of the gold supposedly buried there. You just heard my guest today, Godfrey Pereira, read a passage about the gold that was buried on Cross Island 
because of the doings of the famous Portuguese poet Luís de Camors. And you heard the bit about how the ship captain who actually carried the gold had buried it on the island and then was killed in a bar fight and how no one has been able to find the gold. Godfrey Pereira is a journalist and author of the book Four and Twenty Blackbirds. He chanced upon the story of an Englishman, Charlie Strongbow, who was born and raised in Mumbai, spoke Hindi, and was a dock worker in the Bombay docks. Now, Charlie Strongbow was one of a few Englishmen who were in India at the time of independence, but did not leave India and did not return to England because that was not an option for them. They had nothing there. He and 23 others, hence four and 20 British people, moved to Cross Island to set up a smuggling operation as bootleggers and smugglers of consumer delights such as makeup and cookies and perfumes and so on for the uh, Bombay wealthy. Godfrey Pereira's book is subtitled The Insane Life of an English Smuggler, and that is pretty much what the book is about, The Insane Life of Charlie Strongbow. The novel portrays the lives of disreputable dock workers who are British and had to resort to conniving, lawlessness and violence even to survive in this post-independence winding-down period. We have all heard colonial and independence and partition stories, all of which tend to be about people on the top of society or who are responsible for historical events. But Godfrey Pereira's historical fiction novel highlights another point of view. It focuses on this group of Britishers of lowly status, men of calloused hands and base desires trying to survive independence. It's a new perspective on the colonial era. And of course, underlying their dangerous and eventful life on Cross Island, there's talk of all that gold. Now, there's no real evidence that the poet Luis de Camos decamped with any stolen gold. But the damnedest thing is that in 2021, just two years ago, workers dredging in Cross Island found two bars of gold stuck in their dredging equipment. Was this the gold that the ship's captain had buried? Or is it all urban legend? Well, let's ask Godfrey Pereira. So here he is, joining me from his home in West Palm Beach in Florida. Godfrey Pereira, welcome to the Literary City. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here, really. Let's plunge directly into your book, Charlie Strongbow. What a story. How did you come upon the story? Well, you know, o o over 12, 13 years ago, whatever, I was visiting my friends in Croydon, in London. Anyway, so we were sitting in this pub in what they call the local, the local pub in Croydon. And uh, we were talking on the table, my friend Colin and me. And there was, there were these two guys sitting on a table, you know, a small bar close to where we were sitting. And then we, we continued drinking, talking about inconsequential stuff. And then he said, I'm, you know, I've got something to tell you. I said, okay. And then he lays the story on me, you know, in, in, in bits and pieces. Obviously, I thought it was just the whiskey talking, you know, he's telling a story and it's fine. Okay. And by this time, we were pretty hammered, man. <laughs> you know? But, you know, the journalist in me kind of was, was grasping onto what he was saying. He was telling a story. And an interesting story about what happened on this place 
called Cross Island in Bombay. I, who was who born in Bombay, did not know what Cross Island was or where it was or what he was talking about. Right. You know, I, I was listening and he kept on talking. And that's where he started talking about Charlie Strongbow. Of course, I've changed the name of the person. Mm-hmm. He started talking about this guy who was born in Bombay. Never, never went to England. Spoke Hindi. White guy. This guy finishes talking. We go home. So the next evening we go to the bar. We were going to go there anyway. He comes in and he has these papers with him. Uh, fortunately, before we started drinking, I had a look at the papers. You know, these scraps of papers. And there are letters there written by Charlie Strongbow from an asylum in Southall. I was like, this is insane. And now in the letters, I had seen some of them that he showed me. He was documenting Cross Island from an insane asylum in Southall. I was like, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, I forget the name of, of, the, of the asylum. It's, it's in the book. It's called... St. Uh, Saint Bernard's Hospital. There you go. It's still there. Well, go on with your story. What happened then after you saw these letters? So we finish off and then I come back to New York, to New York. After some time back, I get a call from my friend Colin. And he says, I'm just going to use the word Charlie. Charlie Strongbow is coming to New York and he wants to see you. I said, really? And we met in the village. And he's got this bag with him. You've got to see what's in this bag. He had got the rest of the letters and all the scraps of papers were in this, in this shopping bag. So I, I go home and I start reading the letters. And that's where this whole fascinating story came from. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, this was Danny Strongbore, Charlie Strongbore's grandson. So how did, he, how did Danny Strongbow, again, a fictitious name, yeah, come in possession of uh, of these letters. How did they? How did they end up in his hands? Oh, through that, whom? That, through whom? Through his mother, who was the first illegitimate child of Charlie Strongbow. Now, is this the same mother that is featured right through the entire story? No, no, that's another sister, Maya. The, okay, okay. So this that's is the other sis- one. This is the this other. This is the one. other sister who we never really got along with. Mm, okay, but she lived in Cheltenham, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at some point in time, and it says this in the book, they mailed all the letters, Charlie Strombo's letters from the asylum to her because she was the nearest relative that, you know. So that's right. how and his mother got all these letters. And the guy that you met who passed these letters on to you was her was son. Her son was her son. Amazing. Also, at that time, I did not know it when we met. He was schizophrenic. The, the grandson too. Grandson was schizophrenic. Charlie Strombo, you know, yeah, and and yeah. I, I looked this up. Genes, you can, you can, you, you can, can pass this that. on. Right, right, and, right. and Danny Strongbow inherited Charlie Strongbow's schizophrenia. He wouldn't tell me. He said, you know, what he said was, I said it in the novel that, you know, I have a genetic gift from my grandfather. Besides his, his blue eyes. He says, that's how I see my world. And he literally, I'm not joking. He went out for a cigarette or whatever it was. He never came, he, he came, comes back, he takes the, the, the letters mm-hmm. and, and he leaves. I never seen him again, ever, <laughs> till I got a call years later from my friend Colin that he had committed suicide. Oh, no. Yeah, he killed himself. He hung himself from his fan. 
uh, in his living room in Chelsea. Now, I have a specific question about your research. Your descriptions of the Bombay docks seems pretty accurate. <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> I wasn't born in Bombay for nothing. I was born in Pali village, Bandra. There was a guy there called Titus Fernandez. I mentioned his name in the book. He worked at the Bombay docks as a supervisor for 31 years. He knew the docks and I knew him. After I found out, about Cross Island. You know, I went to Ferry Wharf and stood there, looked at it. Right. Let's talk about Cross Island. In fact, let's talk about the gold specifically. Everyone likes the gold. Now, this poet that you mentioned, Luis de Camos, he's a big deal, isn't he, in Portugal? Right. He wrote this so. epic poem about uh, Vasco. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And he, till today, is considered one of the eminent poets of Goa and an eminent poet around the world. And barring those two gold bars that they found a couple of years ago while dredging, uh, there's no trace of it. I mean, the gold's gone, isn't it? The gold's gone, but, but it's not gone. Nice. Now, what I want to know, and I don't think I'll ever find out, is these two slabs of gold, did they have Portuguese markings? If these two gold slabs which were found had Portuguese markings, Logic states that this gold is still on Cross Island. Good question. Did that gold have Portuguese markings? Now, the fact that it made it to the news, the discovery of those gold bars, would mean they had some sort of chain of custody. How curious are you? Like, you know, like I said, Ramji, that, that would make just another story. Yes. If these bars, if these bars had, they had to have had Portuguese markings. If he took them from the treasury. This was government gold. It's got to be marked. I know that. Your book can be read at many levels. For example, you've set that story in the time of independence. Yeah. And the deep-rooted corruption that characterizes our society. But that's the truth. It's, yes, completely. And you have historical examples. You quote Gandhi writing that he was upset with the corruption in post-independent India. Which he did. And it's during this time of uh, this emerging new India and with the Jeep scandal story and Muslim Hindu riots. And, and this is the backdrop that you've quite artfully provided for the story of uh, Charlie Strongbow, was using all this corruption to his own ends, right. right? Now, one of the things that a theme I found, in underlying theme I found in both your novels, the one that you wrote many years ago called Bloodline Bandra. Right where it's a story of captures how you went to New York City and your, you started your life over there. Around, that's around the time that you wrote that. Right. Correct? right. There's an underlying theme, as I said, that I found in both your novels. Two things. Number one, they both express a sense of disappointment with Indian society. See, this is, this is a loaded, this is a very loaded, uh, loaded uh, statement, but I can explain it. Mm-hmm. You know, after you've finished mm -hmm. what you're saying. Just the second one is based on the first one that this angst and both these examples, they're both reasonably autobiographical. Oh, absolutely. So what happened? What, why is this so personal to you? Well, I'll tell you. When I, when I was asked to leave Bombay and come to New York to work as mm -hmm. a journalist, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's big if you're asked you know, to come and work in New York City, which at that time, so I believe, was the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. Still is, isn't it? Uh, I don't know about that. But, 
But, uh, well, you know, New York City is a great town. I lived there. Yeah. Anyway, for a long time. But I was, I was shortchanged by my employer who was an Indian, you know, so badly. And, and it's a long, long it's a story. Fair. And that's in Bloodline Bandra. Bloodline Bandra. Mm-hmm, that's what I yeah, mean. Bloodline Bandra is not because I wanted to write a novel. Bloodline Bandra was just my frustrations coming out. And I said, I have to tell the story. And mm-hmm. uh, it was life on hell. In hell. I mean, oh my God. You know, I was homeless for quite some time, sleeping on people's couches uh, because he wasn't paying me enough. I was sleeping in, 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 on, on the floor of the office. Hmm. Uh, yeah, till some friend took me in eventually, you know, but I, I broke, I broke and I tried to kill myself. I tried to commit suicide. Oh no. Oh yeah. I was in, sitting in Hoboken, you know, and I'll, I'll never, never ever forget it because You've got to see, listen, you've left. You, I was working with India today. I was doing very well. Mm-hmm. I'm a f- war correspondent. And here I am just broken in New York City. No money, no home, no nothing. People said, well, why don't you just come back? How are you going to come back? I had no money. Who's going to pay for mm-hmm. Where are you going to go? I understand. Plus, psychologically, you're so shattered. So one day I was sitting in Hoboken which is uh, in New Jersey, you know, waiting for mm-hmm. the train. Yeah. Take me to underneath the tunnel to New York City. I think it was 34, 34th number train. And mm-hmm. I was sitting on, on a bench and all these things are going through my head as to, you know, what am I going to do? Absolute depression, blackout. And there's a train coming. And as it is, I don't know, 15 yards away from me, something inside said, John, you know, I wasn't planning it. I didn't want to die. I, but, and my body, and when I looked at it later, my body just, just propelled forward and the train's coming. Yeah. And there was a, some people standing there. They held on to me. Then a cop arrived and, you know, they made me sit down. They're very nice about it. The cop, the police guy knew what, I think he knew what was going on, you know. He didn't say, come, you know, come to the Hoboken police station, which is close by or whatever it is. He, he was very nice. He said, can I drive you to New York? He said, where are you from? And I said, oh. But that's how it happened. I tried to kill myself. I'm sorry to hear that. And, uh, and it stayed with me. It will stay with me as long as I live. As what my own people did to me, you know. And then I found out. And by the way, I worked for all the Indian newspapers in New York. Mm-hmm. All of them. Mm-hmm. Or three or four. Right. One worse than the other. That's not good to hear. They bring you in on an H-1B visa, treat you like a dog, and then say, well, you want to leave, you leave. Where are you going to go, man? Where are you going to go? You've left. You know, you get these stories, these poor laborers giving money to the agents and going to Kuwait. And then their passports are taken away. They're made to sleep in dog sheds. I mean... These people are doing the same thing in New York City, believe, and these Indians. And my thing was, how can you do this to your own people? How can you do this to your own people? And the problem with the H-1B visa, at least then, I don't know now. I mean, eventually I did get sponsored and stuff like that. But at that time, if you employ me in America and I get an H-1B visa, I can only work for you. 
I work, I cannot work for anybody else until I get sponsored again. And forget getting sponsored. It's impossible. So what do you do? I'm stuck to you. So you can treat me any way you want. That, unfortunately, that is the truth. And anybody who's listening to this can find out. You know, I'm not making up a story here. And that's what these Indians do. I have done stories of top rest, Indian restaurants in New York City. I'm not talking about New York State, New York City, which I can speak for. These laborers, these poor cooks out there, you know, the waiters, the guy who's cleaning the floor, no health care, no nothing. Guess who the employers are? Indians. Come on, man. How can you do this to your own people? But they do it. Probably still happening today. You know, that's where my angst comes from. But, I, 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 you know, it's, it, it's over now. I've kind of, you know, it's fine. I am Indian, man. You know, I, I can't get away from that. And it's fine. I don't have a problem with it anymore. Are you sure of that? You sound like you have another book boiling inside of you. Well. Well, do you? <laughs> no, not about hands, no. Well, partly, yeah. Uh, uh, right now, with Speaking Tiger, I've sent them the manuscript, which I finished. There you go. Uh, it's called, <laughs> oh, man. It's called The Incredible India Brown Wash, uh, hmm. which is a kind of wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the, the Incredible India Brown Wash, what an interesting title. Right, because of whitewash, you know, you whitewash the truth. Yeah, yeah. You know, India, we yes. are brown, you and me, and we are brown people, we brownwash the truth. Yes. So, okay. so that's what that's, the story that's funny. Uh, was about. And basically, when I did think about it, it's a carryover from, from 4 and 20 Blackbirds. Because see, Charlie did what Charlie did because he was allowed to do it because of the corruption. He bribed everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that is the truth. You bribe in India and you can get by. Uh, in the old, old. it it has it hasn't changed. I guess not. And see, in the old days, I remember my mother. God bless her soul. There were there was talk about bribing for a ration card, a ration yeah. card. Still happens. Never mind a telephone. We never had a telephone. But if you wanted a telephone, right. you had to bribe, and you know that is the truth. Mm -hmm. And when I say things like this today, it's like. Well, what about your America? Well, I'm not saying America is the, you know, city on a shining hill. God knows you've got corruption out here. But forget America. Just think about India as India. Yes, there's a word for that kind of argument. Yeah, it's like, what has America got to do with it? It's like recently Obama Nothing. said this thing about, about the Muslims. And it's like, oh, right. what right has he got to speak? You're probably right when you say what right he's got to speak. And then you say he bombed. 10 Muslim nations, but as an Indian, ask yourself mm -hmm. this, is there discrimination in India? Yes or no? If you say mm -hmm. no, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to get your head examined. I guess. So when's this book coming? You said you've, you've, give, you've sent in your manuscript. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know. Uh, it, it seems, it, it seems pretty controversial from, from, I've kind of tested it around. It's basically, mm -hmm. basically saying that all along, we've been told divide and rule corruption. A lot of it has been based on, on the British. Now, the book says this. It's, yes, the British were corrupt. Absolutely. Yes, they did steal. Yes, they did divide and rule. But, but as the, the book states, where did it all start? Where did divide and rule start? 
Where did corruption start? You say the British stole, and I'm not saying no, they did. They raped India. But what about all the kings? And I've given examples of the kings and the divide and rule between Hindus and Muslims and the Sikhs and the Christians and St. Francis Xavier and the Goar Inquisition. That was all divide and rule by Indians to Indians. Why haven't you all acknowledged this? And I don't know how, how they're going to take it in India, but I really don't care. You know, I write it, I write it. Let the chip Right. Fall where they may. Well, on a sunnier note, I'd like to talk about some interesting aspects of your literary style that I found in your book. For example, on page 13, you have this phrase. She began tapping at the trapdoor of darkness. Yeah, that was Jinnah's wife. I like that. I like Again. that phrase. There's another one on page 23. Hell opened its brimstoned maw of fanged savagery. Yeah. <laughs> Very compelling. So what got you into literature? Oh, you know, I didn't do very well in school. Ah, that explains it. Yeah, I was a backbencher and I, I don't believe they taught me anything in school besides, you know, slapping me around and <laughs> whatever. Uh, yeah, because, you know, the, I, I, I went to a, a, a Catholic school, you know. I mean, the first thing they do is before they say hello, they slap you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay. And, you know. <laughs> this is too funny. I mean, I went to a school. Oh, of, if, it's any con if it's any consolation. I went to a Catholic school for some time and I was subjected to benders. You know what benders Yeah, are? but they, they, they hit your backside with the cane, right? Yes. Is that what it is? Third grade. Oh, I've had that many, many times. I mean, the priest, man. Now, you know, let's not get into this priest thing because you, uh, we, we'll be talking till the cows come home. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, but I was always reading. I, I, I remember as a kid reading Enid Blyton you know, from the local library, right. the fairy tales of Bray yeah. Rabbit and stuff like that. And then once I was in, in, in college and then I picked literature because I couldn't really do anything else. That's when I really started reading. I began reading the old masters, so to speak, you know, philosophy. And, uh, and it's somehow just kind of, I like to read. And then somewhere along the line, somebody said, hey, why don't you write? I was like, write what? And then I got a job writing for a student newspaper in Bombay. And that's how it started. Mm -hmm. That's how it started. And then I just continued writing, finished off English literature in a haze of smoke, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, don't remember much of it. <laughs> but, you know, that's fine. I got through. And it shows your writing is peppered with literary and cultural and uh, philosophical references. Yeah, because I read so much. You know. Clearly. And speaking of reading, can't wait to read your next book, Brownwash. Interesting title. Yeah, The Incredible India Brownwash. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to go down, but we'll see. Hey, maybe you'll get lucky and get arrested. <laughs> this has been a delight. Godfrey Pereira. Thank you so much for being my guest today on The Literary City. Oh, thank you. It's been so great chatting with you. I mean, really, really nice. Thank you. You've been listening to former Bombay-based journalist and now Florida-based Godfrey Pereira, author of the book Four and Twenty Blackbirds. What an interesting story. There's a link in the podcast description to where you can and totally should buy that book. 
And I will be back with What's That Word? That marvelous segment where we look at the origins of words and phrases that we use all the time, but never stop to think about right after this. Before we move on with this episode of The Literary City, a message from all of us at Explosity. City. Let's take a moment to talk about suicide prevention. If you, or someone you know, is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please know that you are not alone. There are people who care and want to help. Reach out to a local helpline or crisis center. Remember, it's okay to ask for help. And it feels good to help someone in need. A few minutes of your time could save a life. And here she is, my notorious co-host. Hello, my name is Pranithi, but you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E. And hello, P with an A. Hey, did you listen to that amazing story of that Charlie Strongbow and being a smuggler in Bombay? It is amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that happened in India that we cannot fathom. Well, such as? Well, for example, I did not realize that the British people also work menial jobs, like uh, low-level jobs, like deckhands, and what was what was that? Dock workers. Yeah, dock workers. I always had this overblown colonial picture of English people being carried around in pal- on palanquins. <laughs> I don't think so. I think you are referring to a Maharani, you know, your your previous job. <laughs> yeah, you're right about the Maharani, not my previous job. <laughs> but I will do a past life regression to prove you wrong. <laughs> so, I'm guessing you looked up Cross Island on Google Maps. Yeah, it's there for all to see. But you know what? I also zoomed in with Google Earth. Ah, cool. What did you see? Well, there seems to be some kind of a concrete wall and uh, clearly something modern with which to dock boats. And uh, on the island, there are, it's mainly abandoned in shrubbery, lots of shrubbery over there. Uh, and it looks pretty empty, except for... Except hell. <laughs> All right. There's a rectangular concrete structure, and there are three large, well-defined concrete circles, you know, as if yeah. they're air outlets or something. And if you watch the CIA and spy movies, that looks like the underground lair of Drax, the Bond bad guy. Ah, exciting. Oh, yeah. And also, I found a large pile of gold there. <laughs> but I guess they're missing two bars of gold. <laughs> yes, I guess they are. <laughs> All right, P with an A. And now for something completely different. Yes, Monty. <laughs> All right. What's that word? Okay, so at one point in your interview with Godfrey, mm. he used the phrase, let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. Is that something interesting to discuss? Definitely. You know, it's a typical phrase that everyone uses, we use often, but no one knows where it came from. That's why. All right, so let's start with the meaning. You know what it means? I think so. So let's see, it means... Allow events to happen without trying to change them. Right. You know, what's right without worrying about the consequences. Yes? Yes. Nailed it. Great. So now to the etymology, please. Is it interesting? Does it have Greek and pie roots? <laughs> pie roots? P-I-E roots? No, I'm afraid not. You know, only lowly lumberjack roots. Ooh, those guys look 
great in their plaid shirt. They look great in plaid shorts. <laughs> God, no. Shirts. I'd hate to see them in shorts. Well, I would like to stay with matters of the mind. We are lumberjacks. They're all I can think about now. <laughs> it is a matter of my mind. <laughs> it only proves that your mind does not matter. <laughs> Hey, just for that, I'm going to challenge you to do a limerick at the end of this. Oh, no. Okay, you're on. Okay. And now to return to the etymology, please. Oh, yes. Okay. So the most accepted version of uh, let the chips fall where they mean by etymologists is that the phrase was much used in the 19th century. It was pretty common then. And it was used to exhort woodcutters to keep them doing their work and not care about the small pieces or chips of wood that were flying here and there and, you know, never mind where they fell. Just focus on the task at hand. I get it. Good task-oriented advice. It sounds reasonable. <laughs> not, not to my mother. I couldn't get away with leaving chips laying around where they fell. <laughs> I dare say. So there are a couple of variations, and this one from this book. It's a, it became quite popular. It's called A History of Seeing in Eleven Inventions by a Susan Wade. And it's a book that Stephen Fry recommended. I mean, I like Stephen Fry, but why this recommendation? I can't fathom. Anyway, in the so-called Dark Ages among Germanic tribes, one way of making decisions was to cut a twig from a fruit tree, divide it into little pieces, and toss them onto a sheet invoking the gods. That's and bad. then the decision, whatever they were taking, would be based on where these chips fell. Wow. And they had paper in the dark ages? <laughs> Sheets, paper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe, but not electric lights clearly in the dark ages. <laughs> okay. So is that it? Yes. But, but there's this. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's most interesting in an etymological sort of way. Pray tell. You know, the phrase may have sprung from a 14th century proverb that went something like this, hew not high, lest the chips fall in thine eye. <laughs> which, <laughs> which means, know your limitations or suffer the consequences. You know, basically chop at your own level and be successful. Chop above yourself and you will suffer humiliation. You know, this is advice I should have followed before I challenged Vishyanans to a game of chess on this very podcast. <laughs> no, no, no. That game was Queen's Gambit level cool. Like, everyone loved it. <laughs> I mean, the number of responses we got. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you for saying that. Anyway, that was a high point for me. All right, there we go. That's the definition. So, P with an A. Oh, no, no, no. You're not getting away. What? The instant limerick challenge now. Oh, dang. Okay, what do you want me to compose a limerick about? Mm, cross Island. <laughs> cross Island, really? Okay, give me a tick. Tick tock. Tick tock. Okay, I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready. You know, riff as I go along. So here we go. There was a young woman named P. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, all right, to continue. There was a young woman called P. Claimed that she was feckless, adventurous, and free. But when a cunning roué slyly invited her to play, she said, not the gold on Cross Island could make me. <laughs> wow. 
that was wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, if I should say so myself, in all modesty. Well, all hail the Limerick King. Well, I will hail myself a cab and go get me <laughs> lumberjack. <laughs> Bye. And that is our show. I'd like to thank my guest, Godfrey Pereira, and my co-host, Pranati P. with an A, Madhav. And always, you. Thank you for being here. And thank you for listening. And before you go, hit that subscribe button and give us a few likes and leave a few comments, whatever they may be, on whatever podcast platform you listen to. And until we are back with the next exciting episode, here's wishing you have a wonderful time. Bye now. Thank you.